Welcome to Beyond the Bio Black History Month edition. I'm your host, Keith Bevins, a partner and global head of consultant recruiting at Bain. This is one of several episodes throughout the month of February focused on the work we've done for and with the Black community inside and outside of Bain over the years. I hope they're as much fun to listen to as they were to record. In addition to the episodes for Black History Month, we're also highlighting two of our previous episodes. The first was our discussion with Maria Gordian. Maria was our first guest on the podcast and the leader of our Black ERG. Maria also chairs Bain's DEI Council, and since taping that episode a year ago, Maria has been named to Bain's Board of Directors. The second podcast we'll repost and highlight is our conversation with Alex Nother. Alex discusses our efforts to address unconscious bias in the workplace, and it was a great conversation. I've known Alex for a really long time and really enjoyed hearing the work that he's doing. Time is a non-renewable resource, and I appreciate the time you spend listening to us. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to help us get better, just go ahead and send your feedback over. Thanks for listening. Joining me today for the third and final part of our Black History Month series is Darren Jackson, a partner in our L.A. office, and John Barfield, a partner in our New York office. Today, we'll talk with Darren and John about their journey with Bain & Company and their role in the next chapter of Bain's work with and in the Black community inside and outside Bain. Welcome, Darren and John. Good to have you. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Keith. Good to be here. So I've known you both for a while, but as always, I want to bring the listeners up to speed on your backgrounds. And let's start with your education and path into Bain. And Darren, I know you moved around a lot growing up and maybe took a less traveled path into Bain back when you joined. Can you talk a little bit about this? Where'd you grow up and tell me about your path into Bain? Yeah, happy to. It was a little bit less traveled. Uh, I was actually an Air Force brat, so I grew up moving a lot. So I moved around as a kid from country to country and state to state, from England to Maryland to Hawaii, finally settled in Arizona for most of my childhood, moved to LA for for undergrad, went to University of Southern California, USC, go Trojans, studied finance there, which I sort of followed through my entire early career. After USC, I joined Boeing and I, I wasn't necessarily trying to go into aerospace and defense, but they offered me a rotational program for the CFO. And I thought that was a great opportunity to start my career for the first two years, sort of doing four-month rotations for two years, which was great. It turned out being a great jumpstart to my career. I knew I wanted to go to business school, went to Harvard Business School. I think I was a couple years after you, actually, Keith. We might have crossed paths a bit on the yard there. During my summer, I worked for Merrill Lynch. I decided to do investment banking. I tried to follow my strengths in finance, wanted to know what Wall Street was all about. Definitely had not done that or didn't know many people who had done that. I worked out, got the full-time offer. So after B-School, I didn't join Bain, which would have been the more traditional path. I actually went to banking first, did about two plus years there in the Bay Area in the technology group, but always had a thing for Bain. I always knew that there was something special about it. I remember being on campus and hearing Bill Newenfield, a former partner, speak. I remember that to this day. And so when I was about two and a half years in, I actually emailed Madupe, who I know was on an earlier series, was a Babs member and knew heavily in diversity, and just said, is there any opportunity for someone with my profile who'd been out of school for a couple of years? And she said, you know, send me a resume. I think that was literally her response to me. So let me ask you a question there, though. When you left and went into banking, was that the plan? I mean, were you planning, were you one of those folks who said, you know, I want to do this for two years, make a little money, get a little experience, and then go do something in corporate? Or were you hardcore, like banking is my path, and then got two years in and went, uh-oh, maybe not? Yeah, it wasn't a uh-oh, but it was definitely a, I, I had banking on my mind when I went to B school. I just was intrigued by Wall Street. I just wanted to see it. I wanted to live it. I wanted to see what it was all about. 
I think about two years in, it was more of a, I think there's more out there for me, right? In terms of this very verticalized, specialized, which I was, I was doing very well. I mean, I learned it. I learned a ton and my time in banking, I think was very valuable for my career and jumpstarted me in a bunch of ways that's transferable to Bain. But no, it wasn't a, uh oh, it was more of a, just a take a step back. I was definitely feeling the, the burn. <laughs> Let's be clear. But it was more of a, there's more out there for me. And I think Bain's a special place. And I actually didn't look anywhere else except Bain. I just, I reached out to Madupe only. So I was really laser focused on Bain and Bain LA specifically. So it worked out. It worked out. And I've been there ever since. Cool. So you came in as a consultant into Bain. And have you spent all of your time in LA? And where do you, where do you spend your time on your client side? Yeah, no, I definitely not spent all of my time in LA. I probably would say it's 80% or so. I transferred to Australia, which was amazing for six months when I was a consultant, down to Sydney office, which was great. I transferred to San Francisco for six months when I had my my first child because I wanted to, to not travel as much. And I do a lot of work in the Bay Area, which we'll get to. And my career path at Bain is, you know, I think I've been to most offices, not everyone in the system at this point, at least in North America, right. but it's been great. No, and most of my time has been in technology with technology clients. So I live in LA, but I do a lot of work in the Bay Area. So I'm typically up and down the coast. And then like John will tell you, similar to him, I did a lot of private equity work. Those are sort of my two, my two majors at Bain in the last 14 years. And John, let's, let's talk about you for a second, because like Darren, I've known you for quite a long time. What was your path like? And maybe we should start, I know you were Harvard undergrad, Harvard MBA, but what was your path to Harvard? And where does, where does your journey begin as a business executive? Yeah, absolutely. That's what's kind of on the, on the paper, but you know, my life and kind of the way I think about the world is pretty deeply informed by those that came before me namely my grandparents on both sides, actually. You know, on my dad's side, you know, we had the typical great migration story. You know, my grandfather was born very poor and deeply segregated Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He was the son of a sharecropper. And when he was a boy, you know, the family relocated to Pennsylvania. That was the first stop. His dad was a coal miner. And the business experience in my family, at least for this vintage of it, Started when my grandfather, as a boy in Washington, Pennsylvania, met a white man who had a business selling powdered soap. And my grandfather asked the guy, you know, if he could help. Uh, and the guy said, oh, I'm not going to have you sell the soap, but, you know, I'll let you sweep the floors. And my grandfather did that and eventually earned the right to sell soap for 15 cents a box. This is in the 1930s. And, you know, that's when he first learned about business. We'd call it now, you know, sales and marketing and, and corporate <laughs> right, finance, right? <laughs> right? right. But, but that's where he learned about business. I think he was like eight years old. The family then relocated to Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is next door to Ann Arbor, where after a, a brief stint in the army, my grandfather became a janitor at the University of Michigan. And, you know, again, you know, his ingenuity, he started to notice that a lot of Nice homes were being built in Ann Arbor for university professors. So he actually approached a home builder and asked if he could clean the new homes. And the guy said, yeah, sure. We don't want to clean the homes. So when they agreed, he incorporated his own cleaning company with my grandmother called J&B Cleaning. My grandmother's name was, was Betty. My, my grandfather's name was, was also John, Johnny originally. And later became called the Barfield Cleaning Company. So this is like back in the mid-1950s. So then after cleaning a few wealthy folks' homes and actually getting a contract with, with an auto plant, commercial contract, 
He took advantage of the new corporate minority supplier contracts that were being doled out by certain corporations and started a company to provide outsourced manufacturing services for Ford, GM, and Chrysler. And that's the business that ultimately grew rapidly, employed both of my parents, as well as five of my aunts and uncles, you know, creating wealth for, for that side of my family. And then just quickly, you know, on my, on my mother's side, both of my grandparents were products of, of HBCUs, both graduates of, of Howard University, you know, in the 40s. And my grandfather eventually uh, attended Howard's dental school and later would become one of, if not, you know, perhaps the first owners of a black owned dental practice in the D.C. area. So I spent a lot of summers with them watching him go to work every day. He would drop me off at day camp and not fully appreciating what it meant to be a black business owner at the time in a city where my mom had not too long before attended segregated public schools. So, you know, beyond providing me with free dental care, <laughs> you know, that was another source of, of, of wealth creation for my family, but importantly, a source of, of interest in business uh, that I had. It is interesting to me that the three of us are all at the same place, but our families all took different paths through. Yours through the migration, you know, Darren, yours through the military. And I've mentioned before on the podcast, you know, my family is first generation. My mom's grandparents came from the Dominican Republic, and my dad actually was a Belize citizen until very recently and came over for college. And, you know, it's easy, I think, for people to see where we are today and think the path was quite easy, but a lot of things had to go right along the way for this to happen. And if any one of those things break the other way, we're probably in different places right now. Hey, John, one one quick plug. You mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier that there's a book associated with that story. Do you want to give a quick plug? Yeah, yeah. So my, my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, but one of the things he did before he died was he wrote a book about his life. Uh, it's called uh, Starting from Scratch. And it's about his journey from, you know, Johnny Williams Barfield is his given name, uh, country boy from Alabama, to what he later became, he called himself was John Barfield. And of course, that's how I got my name. It's also my, my dad's name. So the book, you know, uh, was intended or is intended to tell the story of his life. But also a key part of the book is an encouragement for young blacks to become entrepreneurs, become owners and take advantage of their of their gifts. And, you know, importantly, you know, this isn't a source of income for my family. You know, most, if not all the proceeds go to the charities that he, he championed before he passed away uh, a couple of years ago, many of which were in the Detroit area where I grew up. So that's a point of pride for, for our family and, and certainly a, a, a source of information about our family as well. So it's not lost on me that as we've talked about the diversity in the Black community inside Bain, that the three of us all have the same business school alma mater. But John, educationally, you uh, you ended up going to Harvard for undergrad. And then what was your path from there? Yeah. So so Harvard undergrad, got an economics degree. I also became an investment banker, similar to Darren. I worked at Lehman Brothers. I went to go work there in 2007. So my, my timing was impeccable. I was there during the bankruptcy, which is a story for another day, of course. But well, I just uh, I left banking in 06, John. So my timing actually was. <laughs> I used to tell my mom, I, you know, and my parents, I said, why, why couldn't you just had me a couple years earlier? It's funny. My, my, my bonus my second year was actually less than my bonus my first year among all the, the, the perils of, of, of birth timing. But, you know, so I so I worked at Lehman and then Barclays after the bankruptcy. And I and I while I did have an interest in finance, I. I eventually realized that my, my true passion was more traditional business and strategy. 
And I realized that my banking career was not likely to fulfill that. So I went off to HBS, actually with the goal of becoming a management consultant. I don't think I knew what I was really talking about at the time, but I did put that in my business school essay. I went back and read it. Also with the goal of eventually, you know, doing a a few years in, in management consulting, but then starting my own business to consult for minority owned enterprises. So you can see kind of the threads from my grandparents' experiences as well. And of course, I haven't, you know, I'm still at Bain and plan to, to remain at Bain for a while, but it does inform the kinds of things that I am interested in doing while at Bain. And I know we'll talk a bit more about this later, but yes, you know, the resume says Harvard, Harvard, but, you know, the story that I told earlier is what informs my passions and the things that I really care about. And, and frankly, the need to do my part to continue to promote generational wealth within the black community, knowing that my family was able to do it, but in the midst of deep, deep discrimination and societal uh, oppression. Yeah, and before we transition to some of the work you two are leading inside Bain, Darren, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned sort of the moment where you went, there might be more for me out there. I'm going to call Madupe and see if Bain is hiring. What was your career vision? What were you looking to get out of the experience at Bain? And did you plan on staying as long as you have? Or, or did you, like a lot of us, plan on getting two or three years of good experience and, and parlaying that into something else? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great question. It's very similar to John. I mean, I felt like we, we both experienced the, the finance world. And like I said, I was I think we were both probably pretty good at it. But it is one thing. It is one element of business, right? It, it is a part of business. And it's not sort of the general purview or general strategy or general management perspective. And that's what I desired. I wanted to get out of just, you know, I could do numbers in my sleep at that point, <laughs> literally. And that wasn't it for me. And I also, you know, no, no disrespect to the firm, but I looked up and I, I, I didn't see people I wanted to be like, right? And it wasn't that I didn't like them as people. I just didn't see that being my life, to be honest. So with Bain, no, I didn't think I was coming for a short stint. I thought I was coming for a long stint. And I think that's a testament to the fact that I started my after MBA at another firm. And so I had my sort of fill of another firm. And when I saw Bain, actually, when I got to Bain, you know, I immediately saw something that I wanted, right? I saw that general management point of view. I saw diversity of clients. I saw opportunities across industry, right? I saw opportunities across capability and I saw the ability to just continue to grow. So my desire was to continue to grow as a business leader. I've always been sort of that general, general manager role or generalist and I saw that as an opportunity to to propel myself eventually, not like John, who knows, it could be another decade from now, but maybe into something broader. But I'd be if I woke up in 15 years as a Bain partner still, I would be I would be very, very happy with that. Cool, cool. Hey, along the way, just to go a little bit outside and stick true to the name of the podcast beyond the bio, John, I know we're recording this on the back end of your parental leave. I have a picture of my my family, although both my sons are bigger than me. Can you all just talk a little bit about where your non-work lives have fit in? Maybe we'll start with you, Darren, because uh, I know yours are a little bit older and tying up some of the internet connection today as we're as we're recording this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I'd love to. I've, I have a, a lovely wife. Her name's Tatiana. She's actually very relevant to this discussion because, as we'll get to, her family, not won't go back to family history, but her father was a, was a Black Panther. It was a doctor to the Black Panthers. She grew up in Oakland, very much into what we're talking about now. So we talk about it in my household all the time. It's a constant. This discussion that's starting to happen more and more has been happening in my house since I met my wife. So, and, be, and before, right? And before. But um, she is shaping the fact she she pushes me and she pushes me within Bain, right? Just to do more and to be more of that 
that spearhead of, of these types of initiatives and efforts. But two boys, one is six and a half. He's the one on Netflix getting my bandwidth uh, a little bit tight. Great kid named Miles. I have a son named Monroe who's about turning two next Friday on Martin Luther King's birthday. So that's cool. Didn't plan that. Worked out well. Outside of work, to be honest, it's a lot of my efforts outside of work are those three people. Because as you know, Keith and, and John, you will know, you don't get much free time outside of working at Bain and having a full-time family. And that's what I love to do. So it's, it's great. A little plug here, but Bain enables me to work hard and also do those things, right? I can actually go to soccer practice when, when we're out of this environment. I can go to soccer practices. I can go to a baseball practice at 4 p.m. if I want to. They give it gives me the flexibility to do those things as a partner, Bain, and that that's really important to me. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take lightly the having people in your life that can hold you accountable for what you're spending your time on. My wife made the same call of me about a decade ago about some of the board work that I was doing in terms of this organization is really important to us and they need you. What are you doing to help besides showing up when you show up? And so that turns out to be really important. John, what about your situation at home? Yeah, so I have a lovely wife named Stephanie proud DC native. She never lets me forget it. We've been married for about going on six years now. And we just had our first child. We had a, we had a daughter. Her name is Sienna. And she's the love of our lives. And, you know, she's growing like a weed already, you know, a couple months in. And to plug Bain's HR policies once more, my daughter was born on October 19th. And I came back to work on January 4th. So I was able to spend a full two and a half months with Sienna and Stephanie, getting to know her and being a formative part of her, her early her early life. I, I told my parents that I was taking that much time off and they they thought I was crazy. <laughs> they said this, this would have never happened, you know, when we were when we were coming to the workforce. So I feel very fortunate to have had that time. It's certainly a generational thing. Uh, when the when the policy was increased several years ago, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, maybe that third might be a good idea. Look at all the time off I get. Uh, we have two, so that clearly did not work out. But it did raise the question again. In all seriousness, though, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the work you all are doing inside the firm. Darren and John, both of the three of us have worked together on a lot of different things over the years as it relates to the Black community inside and outside of Bain. But maybe we'll start with you, Darren, and talk a little bit about what has taken up a lot of your time in 2020 with some of the efforts you're leading inside the firm. Where are you, uh, where are you prioritizing your time on, on different efforts? Yeah, it's a great point. I think, Keith, you and I have had discussions decades ago about some of these topics, but I've allocated a, a lot more of my time in 2020 for sort of obvious reasons to a lot of our diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. If I step back, you know, Bain at Bain, I think we've always felt, and I think rightly so, that we were, we were strong. We were, we were strong in terms of our focus, our investments in DEI across the board. It's always been a firm priority. It's always been a top-down, led, initiative and bottom up, by the way. Um, I remember when I joined from investment banking, which is a different world to Bain, I thought, wow, I mean, I was blown away by the fact that it was openly talked about. And there was uh, the affinity groups were front and center and not just groups that you check the box on. You're actually active groups. And Babs was an active organization. You know, my first day joining Bain, I was taken to lunch by eight or nine Babs members, including Madupe, who flew in for that, right? So that to me, I entered a firm that clearly cared about this deeply and was rooted in our mission and our roots. However, you know, for obvious reasons in 2020, we decided to take another look, right? Instead of, and John and Keith, you guys were highly involved in this, so you're, you're well aware. But take another look inside, right? Are we doing everything we can? How can we take our game to the absolute next level? How can we be great 
right? If we're very, very good, how can we be great and get even better? And so I took the lead with other partners and advisors like yourselves to basically take a look inside and understand what we can do to up our game quite significantly. And I'm quite proud of the work. So in 2020, we took a look at ourselves and started to understand who we wanted to focus on, right? And you'll see, or probably heard of a term called the curb cut metaphor, which is, you know, you focus on the most vulnerable population. And if you design to that target, you will inevitably help everyone. And we took that seriously. And so we chose our Black talent for obvious reasons in 2020. And we did a lot of examination, a lot of self-reflection on how can we up our game with them and with us, our, our Babs community. If you're a listener of the Code Switch podcast, you'll, you'll hear them talk about the explanatory comma sometimes. The curb cut metaphor, it came about, it was news to me when the, when the team started their work, but it's about, you know, if you design for the vulnerable population, so the example given is when the ADA passed, cities and, you know, companies around the country had to cut the curb to give wheelchairs access to the sidewalk. And it didn't hurt anybody. It helped the intended audience, but it also helped older folks with walkers and, and parents with strollers and little kids on, on their little bicycles. And it, it ended up having a halo effect that benefited a lot more people than just the intended audience. And the idea is that you can do a lot of the same initiatives around DEI and have a very similar effect, which is you help your intended population and it ends up helping a lot of other people at the same time. So just for those of you who hadn't heard it before, like I hadn't heard it, that's that's what Darren is referring to there. And so Darren, what what are some of the things that, that you're seeing take place inside as you all are doing that work and, and some of the uh, highlights and, and learnings that you're getting along the way here? I guess if I take a, a big step back, what we've found is an immense amount of enthusiasm across the firm for this, right? I mean, that's probably my number one takeaway, the amount of inbound discussions and requests and conversations that people wanted to take place was um, almost overwhelming at, at the beginning because so many people wanted to get involved and that felt great to me. Even though we felt this was a great place to work, people wanted to be the best place to work for everybody. With our Black population specifically, we uh, did a, a listening tour. We wanted to listen. We didn't want to just assume. And we spoke to almost everyone we could, <laughs> right, within that community. And it was it was just great to, to let them have a voice, let them have an outlet and a channel to just discuss not just how they feel about Bain, just how they feel, right, in general. And what we found, part of the biggest aha for us was that our Black population felt a little bit of a gap across support, belonging, and trust. And I don't think that's Bain specific. I think that's just the way we feel sometimes as Black people, right, in, ter- in, in many situations. And so we use that as our sort of guideposts to understand what we're going to go do. And I won't get into the specifics, but there is a lot that came out of that. We also found that our clients wanted help, right? A big part of this was our clients started to come to us and say, we need help too. We're going through the same thing. It feels like, Bain, you're out in front. Can you help us? And so we've also stood up a lot of efforts to help our clients think about what you need to think about to be the best place to work for your talent. How do you pick your suppliers? Are you diverse in terms of your the projects that you're choosing and suppliers and the supply chain, et cetera, across the board? And so our clients came to us raising their hand in, in droves to say, you know, we need help here too. We know you're great at strategy, but we'd love to hear how you're how you're feeling about these topics for across DEI. So we're very proud of the work to date. Uh, we've launched, gosh, double digit number of initiatives internally that should pay dividends today. And also in the years to come inter- across a number of fronts, including recruiting, retention, et cetera, you name it. And what made me proud was the reaction of our leadership team, 
right from the top. And I mean the very top from our CEO, Manny Maceda down. We're highly engaged. We spent, you guys did too. We spent hours and hours and hours upon hours with them. We're very busy people and they are fully aligned, fully engaged and fully supportive of things that are going to feel quite different. It could feel quite different next year and the years to come. Yeah. And what's, what's been neat for me to see is that it includes some pretty bold stroke moves. Uh, but it also includes a lot of grassroots efforts. We had Ali and Ajare on the podcast talking about the event they held in 2014, Darren, which I know you were involved in, and playing that forward six or seven years and seeing how we've built on that. And you know, it doesn't take sort of these huge, bold moves all the time. It might be a brown bag lunch or the office book club choosing a different type of book to talk about in their post-reading discussions and those types of things. And everything in between has been really awesome to see. And just one other quick plug, uh, Darren, you mentioned belonging, support, and trust. And our very first podcast guest was Maria Gordian, who spent some time talking about that. So for those who want to unpack that a little bit more, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to episode one, questionable audio quality and all. Well, the other thing, if I could, the other thing I want to mention to make sure this is clear, the curb cut effect, which you just talked about, it was absolutely true, right? The the types of initiatives and and levers that we found that we could pull to help our Babs talent and our Black talent, 90% of them would help everyone, as you can imagine. And we found that to be very true. And so although we started with that population, there was almost nothing, well, there was several things, but almost all of that would help everyone within Bain and beyond. And so I just want to make sure we, we plug that, that although we started with a smaller group and one of the smaller groups within Bain, it should help everybody. Yeah, and we've seen that across other groups and other efforts over the years. I've been here, uh, which has been really neat. So, John, you know, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about was back in June, you know, everybody put the black square up. Most people follow that up with a couple point pledge, and we did that. Not on our seven point pledge is a lot of the work Darren is leading and and just shared a little bit about. But one of the things that was quite public and and quite flashy was a $100 million commitment we made behind our social impact efforts. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that is a, a big undertaking, but in the context of a firm that already does a lot of social impact work. So how does that all fit together in this context? Absolutely. Bain's been doing social impact work for a long time, you know, a couple of decades probably. And it's an important part of who we are, which is ensuring that, you know, we do work to help the communities in which we live and work. As part of that journey, about five years ago, we put in place a 10-year commitment to deploy $1 billion in pro bono consulting services to largely nonprofit organizations that are focused on three pillars. The first being economic development, the second around education, and the third around the environment. And, you know, in 2020, following the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent movement in support of Black Lives, we said, you know, we're, we're proud of what we've done, but we want to do more. And we added a fourth pillar focused specifically on racial equity and social justice with an incremental $100 million on top of the $1 billion for a total of 1.1. And that incremental $100 million of deployed pro bono consulting services should be deployed or will be deployed in five years to meet the timeline for the broader effort. And so while our existing three pillars, frankly, had had a strong tilt toward serving the most disadvantaged communities, which are often communities of color, 
you know, we thought it was important to hit the issue of race and justice head on. So, you know, yes, we are addressing urban education and it's critically important that we do. But in addition to that, we have to be intentional about the issue of race and be unapologetic about having conversations about it and about supporting organizations that are explicitly focused on racial equity and social justice and doing it on a big scale. And frankly, sometimes that leads to controversy if you're too unabashedly, you know, focused on a topic like this, but but we said that's what we want to do. So, within this pillar of racial equity and social justice, we have four focus areas. The first is around closing the racial wealth gap. And I'll come back to that one in a moment. The second is around closing disparities in health outcomes. And if you think about what's happening with COVID, that is of particular importance right now, given the racial disparities and health outcomes. Civil rights. So this would be everything from voting rights to immigration, obviously criminal justice, and issues that affect minority populations, and leadership development, which is particularly focused on empowering local leaders of color to be as effective as they can in running nonprofit organizations in their communities because they're going to be the best situated to to support those communities. Let me just hit on the racial wealth gap for a moment. One of the early efforts that we're very proud of is uh, an effort called 110. And we have been involved uh, in helping lead some of the work with a coalition of multinational corporations who have committed to hiring, training, and advancing 1 million Black Americans by the year 2030. So it's, it's 100,000 jobs per year. The corporations have committed to appropriately scoping and hiring for those roles. We are building an ecosystem of talent providers to focus on the upscaling and training. And then 110 is the organization that sits in the middle that effectively acts as the broker, the conduit, the the organizing function to ensure that the talent that's being fed into the system can be matched with the employers that have committed to hiring those individuals. And importantly, the individuals that we are focused on are those Black Americans who do not have the benefit of a four-year college degree. And that's important because that is the group within our country with the highest levels of systemic unemployment. And we think it's important to hit that head on to do our part in closing the gap for the most disadvantaged population. So we are very uh, proud of that work. We're excited about that work. It's just the beginning. And we're excited about launching and enabling additional efforts through this pillar over the next several years. Yeah. And I want to pivot back to some of the stuff Darren mentioned, because you know, a lot of people talk about the culture inside Bain and how we team together and how we work together and collaborate. And John, what you just described with 110, I think encapsulates it really well, because we are going to study the problem. We are going to measure the problem. But at the end of the day, we're going to build a coalition, is the word that you used, and build a team to tackle a really difficult problem in a way that no one individual organization can. 
And that really does encapsulate sort of the DNA of how we approach kind of everything we do as a firm. And, and Darren, you know, one of the other things that I've seen us do this year was the Black Leaders Forum, which came out of some of the work that you're doing, uh, led by Brittany Matthews, who maybe we'll get on the, on the podcast at some point. But, you know, Darren, can you talk a little bit about the Black Leaders Forum? Because that's another example of us trying to build that coalition and that community in a way that, you know, creates a multiplier effect that we couldn't do on our own and, and none of the individuals could either. Yeah, and absolutely. It's a great point. And it also goes to Bain's culture, right? Broadly, in terms of our ability to just innovate and just try something that was new. That was something we had never done before. Brittany brought that to our attention and we thought it was a great idea. So what the Black Leaders Forum was, where it sort of stemmed from was during this time, I personally, and I'm sure John and Keith, you were doing similar things, was having a lot of just discussions, not discussions about business, um, but discussions about life right? and where we were and the state of Black executives and Black people. And I was talking to people daily, you know, friends of mine or colleagues or people I knew or clients, et cetera. And Brittany was doing the same and others were doing the same. And we we just came to this, this aha that there needs to be an outlet for Black leaders, Black executives to just come together and talk and help each other through certain times and to help each other thrive. Right. And that was the goal. It wasn't to, to vent. It wasn't to look backwards. It was to look forward. Right. In a time where we knew people needed a channel. We pulled it together. We did not sort of blast out an email to every black exec on the planet. We were very targeted. We used our own network to make it very intimate. We came together. We had a multi-hour session I thought was phenomenal. I, I was very pleased with it. I think the feedback, I might have been 100% net promoter score. I'm not sure, but it was a very, very high. People loved it. And the point was to, to, like I said, bring us all together, but also think about a plan forward. It was not a one and done. This is something we plan to continue to bring a group back. This is not going to be limited to that group, but we will keep it a bit tight to make it productive and efficient for those. But in essence, it was a forum that we launched this year, or sorry, last year in 2020 to help us as Black executives vent, discuss, meet each other, and thrive. Yeah, and I led one of the breakout groups during that forum. I know you all did as well. It's interesting, as tight as the community is, I actually met some new friends on that call. And despite the fact that we hadn't met each other before, we had a lot in common and a lot of shared experiences as being the only in the room sometimes. And one of the takeaways I had from the forum was this notion that we always push to be at the table, but once you're at the table, that's when you're supposed to use your voice, not celebrate the fact that you're at the table. And the discussion around that and the insight from people in my breakout group on that point was just something that I didn't expect and has stayed with me like all the time since since that discussion. I want to shift gears as we start to wrap and ask you to a couple of, of final questions. And, and John, maybe we'll start with you. But as we start to close, what should companies and others that are thinking about this journey and making progress in this area in the years to come, you know, what should they be thinking about? What lessons have you learned that you would share with people that are listening and in a position to drive some of the changes we're talking about here? Yeah, sure. I, I would say a couple of things. So, so one is, and Darren mentioned this earlier, it's critically important that the firm and those leading these efforts have a point of view, a strong point of view on what the belief is and what you're trying to accomplish and for whom. And that needs to be well understood from, from top to bottom in the organization. And that needs to sort of be your North Star in everything that you do. The next thing is making sure that you're humble and willing to take advice from 
those who may have been doing the work for a long time. We're very proud of our social impact track record, but you know there are organizations that have been putting in blood, sweat, and tears for decades, if not centuries in some cases, and we need to listen to them and learn from them and partner with them, you know, importantly, and be humble enough to not always get the credit, so to speak. And then the last point would be make sure to focus on impact and not theory. Keith, you, you alluded to this. If you're going to try to play a role in closing the racial wealth gap, do things that actually put money in people's pockets. Actually focus on getting people jobs. Don't just write the paper. And have a impact statement that you hold you that you that you stand behind to make sure that when you look back you can say yeah we 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 helped to accomplish something we helped to actually tangibly close that gap versus we told someone how to do it yep and i know you and i have talked about this before and it's a both and you need both and i think you know our results not reports sort of slogan going back to when i joined 25 years ago is more relevant now than ever with some of that work Darren, what about what about you? What advice would you share for people that are in a position to to drive positive change in their organizations? It's one of the key takeaways or one of the ahas is that this is it's not that much of an aha. This is hard. Right? It is hard to drive change of this magnitude on this topic, and it is hard for many reasons. Not just doesn't mean it's unachievable, but it is something that must be deliberate. Right? It's not going to happen by a few initiatives here and there. It has to be literally embedded into a company's DNA every day, every person. And we think about how many people, even at Bain, we would need to impact to make a, a change. It's in the tens of thousands. And so one thing we we just wanted to make sure we understood was how do we systematically roll this out in a way that's impactful? It's very similar to a transformation we would do for a client, right? We take our time and we do a, a very thoughtful review or diagnostic, and then we do a rollout of change through sponsorship spawn, not, not to be too consultancy, but we think it, to make a real change, it's got to be very deliberate and, and pragmatic, the same way we would do any other change, right? I will I'll close with this. The other thing that came to mind is I was in, I was in Mexico City, was talking to an entrepreneur, and we asked him about this topic. And he said, the days of there being a DEI or a corporate social responsibility group separate from this own organization that's driving this are over. And I fundamentally believe that. And it was eye-opening. It's got to be fully embedded into the DNA and culture of your firm, everybody, all the time to have an impact. And that's it's difficult, but it's doable if it's a systematic approach to this issue. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the things we've been talking about this year in particular is this notion of being pragmatic. And you don't want to be slow when when things are on fire and you need real change, but you also have to be pragmatic. Uh, another way of saying it is we need to be building pyramids, not fancy sandcastles. And I think a lot of people focus on really fancy sandcastles. And when the winds change, everything's gone and nothing nothing ultimately got better. Well, and you also, it, it's, it's a, it's a give and take, right? Because the, the population wants action. And we felt that. I know, John, you felt that in New York. We felt that in the, on the West Coast. And so when we took this journey, it was how do we communicate in a fashion that, and, and take our time, because we want to do this right, to your point, Keith, but yet communicate in a fashion where they know we're moving. It might not feel like as fast as you want, but we want to do this right for the long term. 
And that's, that's the work that people have to be willing to put in. I have one question to close for both of you. Again, we'll, I want both of you to answer. And, and this is the time capsule question. We'll dust this off in a couple of years and see how, we, how, how well we did. But as you think forward five years and you look back, what do you hope to be most proud of with the work that you two are leading right now? No, it's a great question. And, and I think it's an important part of any effort to to drive change and have impact. You need to know what you're trying to accomplish. I, I would say there's the obvious things around saying that we have helped to stand up or accelerate large efforts focused on racial equity that move the needle, right? And we want to do it on a national scale and frankly, on an international scale for some of the issues we're focused on. And we want to not get the credit for it necessarily, but we want to say that we played a role. We also want to make sure that we make an impact in local efforts because change is often block by block in zip code by zip code. So we want to sort of have a barbell approach with these large scale efforts, but also targeted smaller community-based efforts. And I would like to be able to say that we accomplished both of those things. And I think the way that we'll know that we accomplished it in a, you know, Beyond, of course, like I said, do people have more money in their pockets? Are people feeling like they are more protected by the system that's supposed to protect them? Is I want the, the leaders of these organizations to say, Bain was a really important part of us accomplishing what we've accomplished over the last five years. And if they're saying that, then I think we've done something. It's not enough for us to just feel like we did it. We need to hear our clients, as we do in all of our work at Bain. We need to hear our clients articulate the impact in order to be satisfied with, with what we, we were able to accomplish. Yeah, I think um, for me, like any Bain uh, project or, or initiative, we set targets and metrics and objectives, right? Multi-year. And we did that. And what's different about this effort to me is they're bold. They're quite bold in terms of this topic. And that makes me proud. And they are, we came out to break some glass, even though, like I said before, we felt like we were already at a high level, but let's even, let's get even higher, right? Which is hard. And we wanted to break some glass. And I think the objectives that we've set for ourselves, if we can ex meet or exceed those, I will look back and be extremely proud of this effort. I think we can do it. Like I said, Keith, it's going to take a very systematic approach, which we have in place. But if we can meet those, it will be a highly impactful change for Bain & Company going forward. And that will make me proud. Darren and John, thanks for such a great conversation. It's always good to hear about the work that you're up to, and I'm glad we were able to carve time out of your busy schedules to just share a little bit with the people listening to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes, and thanks for listening.